Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to another high resolution. I'm Seamus Byrne. Philip Mays is the founder and CEO of Mighty Kingdom, an Adelaide game studio closing in on its 10th anniversary. The studio was named Studio of the Year at the 2019 Australian Game Developer Awards with a super successful focus on developing games for big brand licenses, including the likes of Disney, Lego and Conan. Their games reach tens of millions around the world and they're one of the biggest studios in the country in terms of both headcount and output. This is another fantastic conversation exploring Philip's big desire to see more studios really extending themselves toward bigger ambitions, wanting to see those small to medium studios pursue bigger and bigger ideas to chase the dream of becoming big studios in their own right. It's really great hearing Phil talk with a clear mission to create a big and successful business in the games industry and the desire to develop positive competition and look to lift all ships along the way. We jump in as Philip talks about his relatively late shift into games development. Let's listen in. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting journey because I came to game development quite, quite late. It was a bit of a late career switch for me. I was doing... IT in New Zealand for a very large uh, IT company, and uh, and I was sort of on that on that career path when uh, an opportunity came up to study um, game development. I uh, it was a postgraduate degree. I didn't have a degree, so I had to pretend. Um, I mean, ex- what do we say? Exaggerate? Or uh, <laughs> I'm not sure what the right terminology is. I think lying is probably a bit too strong. Yeah. Um, but no, I had to uh, you know sort of um, convince them that I was a great candidate for that course, and and that sort of really set off my my journey. I had made a lot of really good friends there and a lot of really good contacts. One of them, one of our lecturers ended up working for Midway and he um, uh, ended up being posted to Adelaide to look after the studio, which used to be called Ratbag and then became Studios Australia after the acquisition. And it was through him that I got my my start in the in the game industry. Um, and so I was relocated from New Zealand to, to Adelaide as a junior, a bit of a, Opening, I think, went from a, about a sort of seventeen degree day to a to a thirty eight or something. <laughs> it was a very uh, you know welcome to Australia moment. But uh, yeah, from there, so I sort of was there for a short period of time before Midway shut the studio in in uh, in Adelaide. Uh, I think it was two weeks before Christmas, which was always a great yeah. time. <laughs> so uh, every every time Christmas rolls around, I have that bittersweet memory of uh, you know all those. Um, you know that what that what that period was like and that uncertainty. But I was I was very lucky to land on my feet 
there was a few people who weren't able to leave the state for whatever reason. And, and uh, Chrome, um, based up in Brisbane, they they sort of recognized this and recognized the talent that was available and and took a punt. And they opened a studio uh, in Adelaide and, and hired a bunch of us. My name was put forward, which was which was really really great. So I was one of the, the first three programmers at that studio. And we grew from that initial team of 15 up to about 50, I think, or so. Um, yeah, worked on a whole bunch of really cool stuff. You know, Star Wars, Spyro, uh, Happy Feet, a whole bunch of other things that, that sort of uh, either didn't go forward or can't be named. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> a lot of really cool things, a lot of really cool brands, a lot of really cool experiences. And yeah. But it was towards the end of that, I think, you know, the GSC was starting to, to have an effect and we were seeing um, the contract work drying up and, I was looking for a bit of a change. I'd been in there for a while and the iPhone had come out. I had a, a friend of mine who was really into making apps and uh, really wanted me to get on board with him. He was a designer. He needed a programmer. So we actually started Mighty Kingdom together, just the two of us, as a app development company looking at iPhones. And, and that was you know, quite successful. We did, we did, we did all right. Um, he started another company on the side where we did it together and that became a, a sort of a, that, that took on a life of its own and started to, to run away as well. And, we put that through an incubator over in Sydney and went over to the US and raised some money and did all that sort of stuff. And so Mighty Kingdom was sort of ticking along in the background while this other thing was really sort of blowing up. But it was a, a moment for me in my life where I was like, you know, do I continue down this path of, of startup? You know, we were moving to San Francisco. The team was moving over. I had a, a six-month-old kid, little boy, Xavier, and, uh, and I was not too keen to raise kids in the US. Yeah, I understand and live, that. <laughs> and live, live a startup. I mean, like... Look, looking back, <laughs> hindsight is twenty twenty, as they say. And uh, you know, looking at the situation there now, I think we definitely made the right, right choice. But anyway, the uh, uh, for me, it wasn't just a matter of not being in, in America. It was it was like, well, what what do I want to do? Right? What what is it that drives me? What where, where is my passion? If I'm going to be doing something for ten years, um, it better be something that I'm that I'm really into. So I looked at what Mighty Kingdom was doing. We were sort of a team of about five or six at that stage, and and thought. If I'm going to do anything, I want to make games. That's that's where my heart's at. That's where my my passion is at. And so we took that year to turn Mighty Kingdom around from being a app studio to a, to a game studio. So I kind of think of Mighty Kingdom, which is coming up to its tenth anniversary, by the way, that as sort of almost having two lives. One where we were sort of trying to discover what we were, and then once we made that switch to games in sort of 2013, 14, that's when we started to get that explosive growth, and we started to go from strength to strength and. You know, we went from five to fifteen to thirty to to forty to fifty, and now we're up to seventy odd staff. You know, it's we've been able to have a you know we had a very I had a very aggressive mindset early on as well, and that you know I looked around the the industry as it was at that time and and, and saw that there are a lot of studios that were sort of in the 20, 25 people range. You know, they were sort of topping out around there. A lot of small studios, you know, five and ten man crews. And I thought, why is no one at the other end? Why we don't? Why don't we have these large studios and and surely there's there's work there for those studios, right? That's not like uh, the talent that was working at those large uh, AAAs has, has, has disappeared. It's just being underutilized and it's just been put somewhere else. And so I thought if I can grow a company uh, large enough, uh, I can attract that talent and we can start attracting that those sort of projects and we can start bringing some of those, those large-scale developments back to Australia. And, you know, in, initially I was looking as a small studio, you looked at other studios to partner with to do that. But no one else really had that uh, that sort of ambition. So I thought, you know what, let's let's just do it. <laughs> let's just do it ourselves. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's been a it's been a journey. Like uh, you know, growth as a um, as a as a as a core driver for your business is, is very risky because growth is risky, right? Like you know, yeah. The, 
we're, we're, we're an industry where the amount of product we can create is determined by how many people we have. And people are the most expensive part of that process. Like we can't automate away um, jobs in our industry. So, you know, scale means cost and, 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 and being able to keep feeding that machine has, has always been a challenge. You know, uh, I don't think that ever goes away. Um, but it's been very rewarding and we've, we've, we've sort of hit a lot of our goals in terms of finding a lot of really talented individuals and, and giving them an opportunity to, to, to shine and giving them some interesting problems to solve. Um, and we sort of, you know, once we started to see that um, start to pay off, we started to think a bit more broadly about the industry and, and, and what impact we could have on it and, and started to think about how we could help the next generation of talent, you know, um, to take, take a step and, and start to, I mean, I, I don't think it's any any surprise or secret to anyone that this is a very male-dominated uh, industry, and and we were sort of faced in a situation where we were looking to hire talent, you know, senior talent or, or experienced talent, and uh, they all predominantly look like me. <laughs> They're all, uh, you know, older white guys, and uh, that's just a, a sort of a, an echo of the of the industry of past, right? Is that those people who had those opportunities back then were invariably looking like me, and so now when we're looking for talent and, and senior staff. We're seeing those people come, those names come back up again, and so we, we took a very strong stance of growing talent, of, of deciding to. And if you want someone with ten years' experience, you could either go out and find them, or you could hire someone and wait ten years, right? So we 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 started hiring a lot of junior staff, staff, and we put a lot of um, effort into our graduate program to make sure we're unearthing this talent and and, and finding different sort of voices and and different sort of. Uh, you know, like I say, hidden talents, different talents from around the, around the country, and giving them an opportunity as well. So, look, that's that's an ongoing journey for us um, and for the whole industry in general. I think, and we, we're seeing those demographics and, and the sort of the sort of products that the industry is creating start to shift as those, those new voices are being heard. So, hmm. it's, it's, it's exciting. I mean, it feels like there's a lot of like there's a lot of great stories from that era where so many of those big studios closed around the sort of the whole GFC thing, then. You know, that mobile smartphone platforms were becoming a thing around that same time. And so, you know, there were lots of stories of people taking that opportunity to, you know, to kind of be on that leading wave of mm. creativity on a whole new platform. But it does kind of seem like, you know, a few of those early Australian studios have sort of, you know, like... um some of them, you know, it's like they just went into kind of maintenance modes or they went into things where it's like, oh, they kind of stopped kind of really striving to to like search for, you know, ongoing creativity and stuff. It seems like, you know, you've kind of had a bit more of a, like you say, the kind of growth <laughs> mindset or, you know, is there that ongoing urge to kind of keep, you know, keep doing the best work you can every single year and not just sort of leaning on, you know, other products that you did 10 years ago? Yeah, look, look I would love to have... Uh a stable of of strong IP that we developed ten years ago that we can <laughs> we can keep leveraging. <laughs> like, don't don't get me wrong, like that's that, that's fantastic, right? Um, but yeah, I think like the difference there is that you know I, I was a programmer for, for many many years, and um, in the early days of Mighty Kingdom, I'm, I was still a programmer. Um, you know, there was a moment last year where I had to uh, hand my Unity license back to the pool. It was almost like giving my badge back, right? And, <laughs> yeah. uh, and so I think they, it all comes down to the reasons why people get into, into game development. And a lot of them are passion-driven, right? And if you think about the talent that was left behind after the GFC, a lot of, a lot of really senior talent, they all, they all left, right? And, and they all got jobs overseas or they, they left to other industries that were, that were parallel. The people who, who, who remained were ones who sort of rejected that, that sort of big studio culture or, or, or had a different vision of the industry that they wanted to create. Um, 
and that industry, you know, is driven by design. It's driven by by passion and by creativity and by creators. The iOS App Store and the and Google Play afterwards really provided an uh, like a path to market that didn't exist before. The, the, the console market had become sort of dominated by the gatekeepers. You know, the platforms were very had a, had a very high bar that you had to clear before you were able to get in there. You usually had to partner with the publisher, and a lot of people in that time weren't looking to publishers. Right, they wanted to find a different path. Um, and, uh, and and so you, you know the, you're correct in that the 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 phones provided this this avenue for these people to bring their products to market and, and to an audience in a way that they hadn't had before. And a lot of them saw success. There was a lot of really great successes, and there still are within within the game industry. That's shifting now. That, that the market has changed again. Like there's been enough changes, and we're going through a period of consolidation in that market. But but I think what, what's you know to sort of get back to the original point, the skills that you need to grow a large studio are different to the skills that you need to make a successful game, right? Like that, that it's a different skill set altogether. Yeah. Um, and so I, I've been conscious of that from the start and, and, and knowing what my limitations were and who I needed to surround myself with to offset that because I've had this view of, of you know, I want to have a studio that we are able to do AAA work, that we can actually do these sort of large scale. Um, I, I can't think of many studios probably outside of Wargaming where you have, um, you know, 100 people working on the same project. Right, like that. Just that projects at that scale don't exist in Australia at the moment, and that's and that's a shame, right? Because you know, we spoke just before we started the recording about GameLoft and their decision, you know, their tough decision to to, to resize and, and to rescale. But that um, that 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 sort of decision takes on increased importance when there is nowhere else for those people to go. Right, we're we're in a we're in a, in a market where people looking to work at that level have a limited number of choices. Yeah, we you know we're conscious of that. You know in that. We can't hire everyone, right? You know, so that, and we can't do everything. We, we have to choose the sort of projects that we make and the sort of company that we want to be. Um, but there's a responsibility there, especially in, in Adelaide, being the largest employer here. Um, you know, that uh, if we if if we we say no, if we stop doing something, that cuts off a huge um, path, you know, career path for a whole bunch of people. And so that carries the extra weight, right? And I can, so I can I can fully sympathise with the with the with the game loft crew and, and what they must have gone through. Um, because if you're in a thriving market where you have a whole ecosystem of companies from, of all scales, right, from the two man up to the 200, then if somebody loses a job somewhere, that there's, there's options for them elsewhere. You know, we don't have that market here at the moment. We don't have that ecosystem yet. Yeah. There's a lot of opportunities for people starting out on their own, and there's a lot of support there. You know, Victoria has been really fantastic at it, um, and we're increasingly seeing other states sort of step up to, to recognize that as well. But you know, once you once you outgrow that. Once you want to take the next step in your career, like where do you go in Australia at the moment? There's very few places to go. And, and, and really, if you wanted to do big console stuff, you, you have to go overseas. And that's just a, that's a shame, right? That's a big talent drain yeah. um, for, for our industry. And we, I want to sort of, my vision for the industry is to be able to have all those um, companies, all those studios, everyone working at different scales so that we can have people have an entire career here in, in Adelaide or not in Adelaide. Well, I mean, ideally in Adelaide, but yeah, in, hey, in, in, in Australia in general. Um, yeah. And I think that's, that's the industry that I walked into when I came over here and, and however long ago I was going to remember now, 2000 and something. Uh, and uh, you know, that's the industry I'd like to see return so that, you know, when, when, when Ratbag shut down as horrible as that was, we had five studios fly recruiters out to Adelaide to, to interview all the staff. Right. Um, you know, if we hear a story about uh, you know a studio in Australia um, really you know closing down, like like to find. I mean, that, actually, they were pretty good at, at rehoming people. But uh, when you hear those stories now, there, there isn't that same infrastructure to support those those people. Uh, there's not. It's not a matter of 
uh, you know, being able to just go, well, shit, that sucked, you know, but, you know, there's another job for me if I just, you know, go through the process. There's nowhere to go now. Well, there's very few places to go. Yeah. And uh, it's, 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 it's really, that's really tough. So I think that the mark of a healthy industry is, isn't just this, you know, the, the amount of money that it earns, but it's the opportunities that it provides to, to people working in it. And I think we're not quite there yet in Australia. Yeah. And I mean, in, you know, in this kind of past 10 years, how different, you know, that approach back at that sort of early stage of mobile, you know, being able to go, yeah, like, let's, let's give this space a crack. Um, it's now, you know, a sort of a different space. It's got, you know, maturity. It's got a whole different business models going on. You, do you feel like you could even walk that path again or do you have to kind of search for other angles on the, the state of the, the market as it is now if you were trying to start from square one? Yeah, I mean, it is, it is very different. I always think it's difficult as well when I, when I talk to people and they, they try to understand the journey that we went on and take notes, right? And I'm like, look, there's so many things that were just very lucky or very fluky or just a product of the time that um, I can tell you what we did. Like, there's zero <laughs> chance you could replicate that now, right? Like, so yeah, like you, you always need to be looking. You always need to be, this is where I say like you, the, the, the first part of any successful games company is making great games, right? So you, you've got to have that part down. You've got to know how to do that and, and do that reliably and measure that and, and, and have the tools and the people and the stuff around you to know when you're on the right path. Um, but you also need to have a great business. And I think that's where it gets tough, right? Because the days of being able to create, like if you think about the early days of App Store, when there wasn't as much content as there was now, it's easy for good content to filter up. That's not the case now. You, you need to partner with somebody to help market your product, to get them in front of the right eyeballs. Um, I would say in a sense, like Steam and the, and the PC platform is starting to become easier in that regard because they've, they've sort of changed the way that their tools have worked from when I started to, to sort of, provide people with that sort of head start, right? Like you kind of get a guaranteed number of, of, of views and stuff. So like the, the product, sorry, the market will always shift, right? You, you always have to adapt your business to see what the market is doing. And, and we've, we've sort of been conscious of that as well as try not to tie yourself to one platform, one product, one genre, because otherwise the market will shift and then you get left behind. And so you constantly be, re, be evaluating, you know, evaluating your processes, your, your tools, your techniques, your, your platforms, your partners, everything all the time. And make sure that it's still relevant to what the industry is today and where it's going. Um, so yeah, I mean that's like I said, it's, it's a whole different skill set to just making games, right? Which is what most yeah. people want to do, right? We want to do the fun stuff, but uh, yeah, there's all there's all the hard stuff around it. The the good thing I find is that this, these sort of problems aren't unique to games. There, you know, there are other industries that face this sort of challenge all the time, and they've overcome them. And so we could look to them and, and learn from them and, and understand how they manage this this sort of workspace. In, in Adelaide here, we have a lot of visual effects studios and uh, and seeing how they manage the, the the staff up and staff down on projects and and uh, and how they actually go out and find work. Like, you know, we're, we're, we're based here in Adelaide. How do they go and win Hollywood contracts, right? Like there's a whole process around that, which we can learn from um, and apply to the sort of things that we want to do. Um, so, yeah, I think we, you know, part of it is just recognizing what problems are, are ours and ours alone, but also looking at what we can learn from other industries that are basically very close or solving very similar problems to us. Yeah. And look, I mean, you talk about, you know, those kinds of companies getting these Hollywood contracts. You guys have, you know, license deals with sort of some of the biggest companies around, you know, Lego, Disney, all these sorts of companies. <laughs> when, when did you feel like that was, you know, uh, an angle that you're going to pursue? I mean, how do you even pursue it and, and kind of, you know, prove yourself worthy of, of landing that kind of a, a relationship? 
Yeah, this, this gets back to the, what we said before about how much of your journey is uh, is sort of um, impossible to replicate. Yeah, <laughs> it, it was, there was there was a lot of luck involved in some of those early um, those early moments of Mighty Kingdom's uh, journey, particularly when it came to Disney and the, and that and the doors that that unlocked. Um, we just happened to be in es- you know in essence in the right place at the right time. Uh, and but I think that you know. A lot of people are in those places at the right time. It's about what you do from that moment yes. on, right? and how, how you capitalize on that. So we were we were we were in a we were in a position to be able to recognize what that opportunity was and to maximize the, the return from it. Um, and so you're correct. Yeah, we turned that Disney deal into Shopkins, and then turned that into into Lego, and that's opened the doors to some other things that we've got in the in the pipeline as well. Um, you know. It's it's funny to look at the portfolio and think, wow, there's a lot of kids' products in there, and uh, it's not something that you wake up one day and go, kids' games, <laughs> let's go make kids' games. But it's about following those opportunities where they where they where they yeah. rise. And um, you know, the the goal for us is to is to tell uh, you know interesting stories with the complex characters and worlds and things like that. And, and so we we look at the audience that we've grown with and how we can build on top of that. One of the products we put out, Wildlife. Um, we're sort of built on this uh, engine that we developed for one of our kids' games, for a Shopkins game. But we noticed that there was a cohort of players playing very late at night. Um, and so we sort of, this, the, the, we're thinking, that's probably not the kids, it's probably the parents, you know. So <laughs> let's have a look at what, how they perform and, and what they do. And so we were able to sort of create and tailor a product around that market. And that sort of showed what our storytelling capabilities were and started taking steps in that market. And, and you know, a lot of the things that we're working on right now are sort of building on the lessons and the, and the things that we learned from there. And, and uh, sort of growing with that audience, and, and uh, you know, you know, we talked a, bit, a little bit about um, parts of the uh, the development community that that are sort of underrepresented. I think in terms of content for um, some demographics within just just generally, there's a lot, not a lot of content developed for them. So I think if you can find those those markets and you can give them content that they really enjoy, that you get you get rewarded for. Right. So we're always looking for ways that we can compete with the big guys because we don't we don't have the budget of the, of the big people, you know, and so we. You, we, we pick our battles and we're clever about where we invest and, and, and who, we, who we partner with um, to offset some of those risks. But yeah. I mean, it, it sounds like um, a really great lesson though in, I guess, using your analytics well or even kind of knowing um, what you're trying to look for because yeah, that idea of actually spotting, you know, a cohort of players that are clearly outside the norm, some people might not necessarily... I guess dig into their own statistics in that kind of way. You know, um, is that something you sort of actively do across, or was it? You know, was it that happenstance thing of someone going, "Oh, what's this kind of bump at the at a weird time of night?" Or, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that's certainly what, how, how it sort of started. And, and, I, and I guess it's like the, the data doesn't tell you what to do. Yeah. The data is just data, right? And, and it was it was the inside of one of our product managers who and she saw this and and looked into it and researched it and came up with a products ultimately became wildlife as a way of of sort of addressing this or, or you know as sort of uh um capitalizing on this opportunity that she sort of um, identified and uh, you know so the data doesn't the, the data helps you make decisions it doesn't make them for you it's just, <laughs> yeah. it's, just it's just information right and and it's all about uh, marrying that up with the with the human component um you know I, I know that there's a contingent of developers out there that are you know that rejects that sort of approach, right, to, towards using data to, uh, to tune, or you know, like they're, they're a lot more about the vision. What we 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 sort of think about, we're much more about the players, right? We're we're very what we call customer focused. We want to make sure, like, if you're in a free to play space, 
In other words, you're giving your game away for nothing, right? And you're just hoping that people like it enough to, to watch an ad or buy a, buy a thing, right? But no one ever bought something in a game that they didn't love, right? So that you have to get them to fall in love with your game. And you have to make, that's what I mean, you have to make great games, you have to make great content. And so you can't trick people into giving you money, right? Or at least, even if you do it once, you know, no. fool me once, you know, <laughs> they're not going to come back again and you're going to yeah. get a reputation for it. So, you know, the, the secret of free to play isn't, some you know this one weird trick will will unlock you know. Wait, this. let me write that down. One weird trick, please <laughs> tell me. <laughs> no, it's it's like understanding your audience and giving them content that they that they value, right? And and to do that blindly is is really tough. You have to have conversations with your audience, and if you have like in the case of shoppings when we had you know many millions of people playing it every month, you can't talk to a million people, right? That's that's impossible. Like you do get some course grade and feedback through through surveys and stuff, but really. The data, the way people are playing tells you a lot about what they value. If we've got 10 mini games in one of our products and everyone's playing two of them, well, you know, <laughs> I think that gives you a pretty clear indication of where your, your, you know, your investment should be. Uh, and, uh, and so I think to ignore data is a, is a mistake, but to rely solely on data is also a mistake. Yeah. Right? The, you you got to make sure that you've got the, the human intuition in there because that's, that's where the ultimate value is. And look, you know, I think you've mentioned Lucky a couple of times, and I think when we talk about people, um, you know, a little later I want to talk about, um, you know, graduates and the ways in which that they need to prepare themselves for opportunities. But, you know, that so many people, I guess, you know, they use the word Lucky, but as you said, you've got to kind of, when you're in the right place at the right time, you need to take that opportunity, and that's then when you make your luck. So, um, you know, is there something about the, you know, when you've kind of spotted that right place at the right time, what is it about, you know, kicking that door in and, and, and saying, this is mine now, I'm going to take this chance? <laughs> is it a mindset thing or is it even just, you know, like almost like what's the difference between the people who walk past that door and just not quite notice that it, that opportunity yeah. was even there? Well, yeah, it's interesting as well, right, because I think when you look back at, like if you asked everyone at Mighty Kingdom back in 2000X or whatever it was before we, before we started working on Shopkins, whether they wanted to make kids games, I don't think anyone would have said yes, right? But once once you once you're into it and you understand the market and you, and you and you see the opportunities there and you can build the bridge to where you want to get to, everyone gets really excited by that by that opportunity, right? Because they can see where it leads. And so I think you know your, your first blush reaction to some things is to be like, oh no, that's not for me. But and and you know we try and temper that. We try not to make a decision in the room, right? Like try and like take the information, have the meeting, um, and then go away, and then we'll talk about it and, and you know. Have, like I think I spoke at IGEA about having an idea of where you want to be, like where you're going, because um, then you can start to look at an opportunity and map it against your your goals, right? And for two reasons: one, you can either find parts of that that will help you get closer to where you want to go, or it might make you think, oh, you know, is our goal incorrect? Do we need to start thinking elsewhere? Like if everyone's telling us that you can't get there, maybe we need to go somewhere else, right? Like but it's not it's not sort of fight against all the tides. Um, so I, I think like just Having that, uh, giving yourself the time and space to, to to look at an opportunity through multiple lenses, you often can come up with a way that it can help you. And that doesn't mean like convincing yourself a good, a bad deal is a good deal, but it means that if you look if you look at it through you know in a different way, you might say, you know what, kids games allows us to build this technology and to, and to build have this revenue which allows us to invest in this and allows us to do that. And so you can start to get to where you want to go. Um, if you sit if you sit around waiting for the perfect deal or for the perfect opportunity, you often find that you know it's passed you by and often like you know we've, we've, we've experienced this as well that the product that you thought was fantastic uh in the market 
um, the market moves on and you know what was good a year ago isn't relevant anymore and you need to let that go and 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 sort of face up to that reality um, so yeah I think it is a little bit of mindset but you have to be looking for opportunity obviously one, one of the things we said right in the early days of mighty kingdom is like uh, you got to be in the room right like no one no one signs a deal if you're not in the conversation and so we we made a big made it a big key to turn up to events like gcap was sort of the first one we did um, which was fantastic and then we went into gdc and then to gamescom and, and to like other conferences around the world casual connect and you know you, you try all sorts of different ones uh, and uh, sometimes the ones that you have think will have, have no value are the ones that turn up uh, you know the product we're working on uh, with funcom the conan product was signed out of a Paris game show, which every single person I spoke to said, don't go there, nothing ever happens there. <laughs> and uh, so we sent one person there and lo and behold, you know, um, we ended up coming back with a deal. So like that's, you just got to be in the, you got to be in the room sometimes, right? Yeah, you got to yeah. do the hard work. I hate traveling. Like I hate the distances that we have to travel, but that's just, that's just the nature of it, right? Um, yeah. Uh, you just got to be there and be in the room and just talk to people and be yourself. Uh, it, you know, we found, it took us about, three, maybe four GDCs before we start to consistently get sort of, in essence, sort of deals flowing from there. We didn't didn't necessarily sign everything that came our way, but you start having those conversations. They're like, oh, I remember you from from last year. I remember you from that party. I remember you from that thing. And if you can keep turning up and showing progress, I think that's the other thing is, right, is show progress. It's it's one thing to just be there. If every time you turn up, you've got something new and you've got something that you're talking about, that you're excited about, that you're showing off, People see your progress and they remember it, and then they go, "Oh, those guys deliver." They do. They say they're going to do a thing, and then they do a thing, and that's um, that's the other part of it, right? Is uh, actually backing up what yeah. you say and doing what you say. Like you can't, uh, you'll get found out pretty quick in this industry, and it's pretty small. Uh, you know, the, the number of faces and voices that you, you see are very limited, and, and uh, once you get a bad reputation, it can be tough to shake. Um, so, uh, like, just make sure that you're actually um, being honest, being and if you and if you if you make a mistake, no one's going to burn you for it. As long as you own up for it and, and say, "Look, that was wrong," um, and we've moved on, you know, you'll you'll be fine. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Um, and it's probably a good place then to just touch once more on the whole license thing, because of course, again, winning the license, as you say, you still have to make a really good game. I mean, how do you? How have you approached trying to you know marry the right idea to the license? Is that part of the initial pitch, or is it is it almost that you know once you've got the license, you are then trying to play with it a little bit to think of what the right game is to, to, to make yeah. after that. Licenses through, through the ones that we've worked with, um, are, they're a bit different to, our, to the normal process uh, because when, when, you, when you're working with a brand, there's a lot that you already know about it. You already know a lot about the audience that you're working for uh, and you already know a lot about the sort of games that they're, already, that they're playing and particularly if it's a good brand uh, like Lego, you, you've already seen what they've done before and you can sort of leverage what has worked and what hasn't worked. Um, so quite often you're sort of going into that with a lot of information already. And so you, for those licenses that, we, that we've worked with that have been announced, <laughs> um, you know, we walked into those meetings with a, with a pitch, with an idea of the sort of product that we would create. It um, doesn't mean that we always end up building exactly that product, but it was the starting point for those yeah. discussions. Um, you know, you can look, like if you looked at... Um, What's a brand? Let's look at Star Wars, right? There's, there's a whole bunch of like uh, RPGs and shooters in that space. So if you walked into a meeting with Star Wars and said, we're going to do an RPG, they'd be like, you know, we've already got a, a bunch of those, right? So do a little bit of your research to find out where the gaps are in, in that audience. And, and you know, then you, if you turn up and say, hey, you guys got a bunch of these, 
but I can see that there's this underserved part of your, your audience and that would love a product like this. And then they'll be like, yeah, cool, let's, let's do that. Star Wars moisture um, farming simulator. <laughs> don't, don't get me started. <laughs> I uh, like just by the by, I think Star Wars would be a real difficult brand to pick up as a as a as a small developer because it's so competitive. There are so many Star Wars games. Like, how do you stand out in, in that market? Right. Like, I think that would be a challenging one. But uh, God, I love Star Wars. It's uh, my kids are going through it at the moment. We're uh, we did a modified machete order. We were uh, oh, yep. watching, we're watching the, the Clone Wars at the moment because... Uh, oh, nice. Yep. Yeah. So we, we stopped after the second one, and uh, second prequel and started doing it Clone Wars. But they're itching oh, yeah, to get to into kind of, the, Yeah, insert the Clone Wars into that part of the story. Yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, because the uh, Anakin's arc makes no sense in the movies and the Clone Wars actually kind of fills it out a bit better. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so look, <laughs> right into Star Wars. So there's a lot of that going around. Um but yeah, so and I think that's that's another lesson though as well is that you need to pick the brands that you that you go for. The the ones that we've worked with have been within our within our capacity to to, to deliver. Right, like there's a there's a there's all. Whole, I mean, we can get into this is a whole different kind of thing. It's all businesses and other things. But uh, there's a lot of costs to uh, to being able to acquire a license and to service it and a whole bunch of other things. And you need to be aware of those going in. And the bigger the brand, the bigger those costs, and it can be a lot tougher to. Um, and you know the, the expectations are a lot higher as well. And so you've got to make sure that you're okay, like meeting those costs and, and delivering. Uh, and the, the, you know, the toughest thing about it all is that at the end of the day, if, if the client's not happy, they can just not release the product. So yeah. a lot of that, a lot of that, uh, a lot of that work you put in can just be for nothing in the end, and that, that's really tough. So you've got to make sure that your systems, your processes, and everything are designed to be able to mitigate that risk as much as possible. You know, we, we do it through. You know, just, just just communication. At the end of the day, a lot of it is communication. Just making sure that you're in touch with your with your clients all the time and, and letting them know what's going on and keeping them informed and part of the process. Yeah, but uh, but that's something. Like I say, we could we could talk for hours about about business stuff. <laughs> <laughs> One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. But yeah. But look, I mean, let's talk a bit about Adelaide. You know, I mean, as you said, you sort of arrived there because there was an existing studio and that <laughs> went like, is, it has it, you know, how has, I guess, over the last decade, you know, how's the scene sort of evolved there? Is there a, you know, sort of local um, community chapters alongside sort of having studios like yourselves or are you basically, yeah, you're the one scale studio? Yeah, I'd say in general, there's a lot of successful studios here, but they keep it on the down low. This is what I think is the secret of Adelaide is they keep, they keep yeah. everything pretty pretty quiet. If you look back at the the Game Developer Awards, and you know, we had uh, 
Matt Troviani out there with Hacknet early on and, and then again with Labyrinths and we've seen uh, you know, Hollow Knight from Team Cherry. They've picked up a couple of awards. The last two Studio of the Year winners were from Adelaide. So like I said, there's a lot of really good, um, sneaky good stuff happening here. Yeah. I think, I think the next Dark Horse will be uh, Foxy Games. You know, they've been just quietly out there achieving, growing, you know, going from strength on strength. And, and I think they've got eyes on our office space at the moment um, <laughs> in terms of their growth strategy. The, uh, so we, we were lucky. I wouldn't say we're lucky, actually. We went out and, and, um, and courted Game Plus to set up a, a, a facility here. And so we've got a, a co-working space dedicated to the game industry. And that's a really good focal point for a lot of these, a lot of these conversations. Um, and so I think uh, that's the core of the, the gaming scene in Adelaide. But there's a, you know, for every person that's in Game Plus, there's probably two or three people working outside it. And, and we did a, when we were setting up some of the, you know, liaising with government on some of the, the, the things we've been working with. They do a lot of surveys of, of, of how many game developers there are. And I'm always quite surprised at the numbers that come back. There's a lot and, uh, and, and it's been really good. The, uh, one of the good things about being in Adelaide is you're sort of, you're sort of out of the limelight a little bit. And uh, that means that you don't get a lot of the, uh, the, the glare <laughs> you know, and oh, that the, that, that, and the attention that other, other regions get. Um, but, and on the flip side, being smaller and a bit more tight knit, we don't have a lot of the sort of infighting. We haven't we haven't had that. Uh, like this is going to sound like a backhanded compliment, but we haven't had the um, the, the support from the government until recently. Um, that has put us in a position where we're competing against each other for for attention. Yeah, and so that's created a, an environment where everyone's help, very helpful and looking looking out for each other. That's not to say that the government hasn't supported us. So they've, they've recently come to the table with a. Um, some grants to help people sort of switching into the industry and, and getting established. And that's been fantastic. Um, but we've, you know, because of the influence that we've had in the, in the, in the state as well, we've had a very strong um, focus on building your business as well as building your game and trying to help people with that as much as we can. And, and uh, you know, we, we try and encourage everyone who works in my kingdom to give back to that community as well and to, and to be a voice and be an advocate for the, for the group and, and to talk about, you know the um, issues of diversity issues of culture and a whole bunch of other things that we, we try and um, talk about to you know these, these are these are things that become problems for studios when they grow past a certain size but if you can get those systems and processes in place now and think about those problems now then they don't become problems like you know you, you can you can solve a lot of things now just by making some sort of easy decisions so we try and sort of pass along that sort of information to the to the locals but um but yeah look for the longest time we, we were the we were the the, the the biggest game in town, uh, but uh, that's 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 changing very rapidly, and that's very exciting for us. Yeah, and you know, it seems like um, you know from other conversations I've had in other cities that aren't Melbourne, uh, there's, <laughs> you know, there's always that sense of wanting to kind of build the local ecosystem because it does then, you know, it helps you as well. If there's other places someone can get work in that city, that that commitment to sort of you know coming just for your studio can be can be hard if it's like, oh, and if it doesn't work out, then I'm probably moving, you know, interstate once again. So yeah, um, I mean, that's, su- that's super tricky for us here in Adelaide as well. Convincing people to move here is, is like a, yeah, that's, that's a, that's a challenge. It's like the tree change kind of theory. of <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I mean, like we, we, we sort of get, particularly when you're looking for uh, sort of diverse senior talent, right? You get like a double whammy because you, you know, not only are they hard to find and there's so few of them, but none of them want to move to Adelaide, <laughs> mainly, mainly because you're not moving a person, you're moving their family and, they, and their support network yeah. and stuff like that. And, it's a, and while we may be able to offer them a job 
It's uh, what about their husband or their or their wife? Uh, what about their um, their kids? Where are they going to go to school? And and you know what about all the you know the all the other parts of their life, their partners, their support, their work, and et cetera. You know, how do we replicate that here? That's really hard, right? And that makes those decisions a lot harder for people. And you know, we're we've recently um, started branching out into other cities. We have a couple of staff working in Melbourne. That's that's you know hot off the press, I guess. <laughs> uh, but uh, so we're, we're looking at ways, particularly yeah, what what this sort of pandemic has has shown us is that we're able to maintain productivity quite effectively. Uh, by working remotely, and so I think a lot of the the fears that producers had around productivity and output um, when you when you're in an environment where you're working from home or not all in the same office have been sort of put to rest for a little bit. Like you know the the greatest uh, like data is the greatest uh, the leveler, right? Where you, where you come along and say, well, look, it didn't 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 have anywhere near the impact you thought it would. So let's um so now that opens the door to us to start thinking about well, we don't need people to be here; they can be where they where they want to be. Uh, and that, that's that's exciting as well. So that'll open up a whole bunch of new opportunities. Mm. And yeah. I think as some pe- people have uh, said as well, it's like we need to remember we're not just working from home. We're working from home in the middle of a crisis and therefore even, you know, what what is yeah. possible now is probably not even as much as will be possible when people have a, a genuinely balanced uh, life yeah. outside of work. <laughs> and look, it hasn't been without challenges, right? Some people really have enjoyed it and loved it and, and um you know, I've got. I see my kids more now than I've than I have in a very long time, and that's going to be hard to to give up if if we want to go back to the office. But uh, you know, other people, you know, we've had people who've, uh, like you say, moved interstate to come and work for us, and don't have that support network here yeah. uh, outside of the studio, and uh, living alone. And so now, when the lockdown comes in, you know, their their social you know, network just shrunk very, very, you know, very small, and that can be really, really challenging and confronting, right? So it's not the great cure all for everyone. Yeah. Um, but I think it, it provides another option that that wasn't well, it wasn't really on the table before. We, we, you know, it's one that everyone talks about, but no one was really to pull the trigger on. Yeah. Um, so I think it's sort of given us some a lot of really good information about how to handle that situation, and you know, from a from the practical stuff, but also down to mental health and other things as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, when it comes to things like, you know, you mentioned that the you know, state government there has started to do some things that help to support um, the industry. Uh, yeah, what do you feel like um, is the sort of right path there in the sense that, you know, as you said, you've had a strong business model attached <laughs> to making sure that you actually operate well. And so I think sometimes it can sound like people like, oh, well, just give us some free money so we can do stuff. But, of course, you know, it feels like almost every other business industry that is still an entirely legitimate business industry has its own set of subsidies or opportunities to make sure they're globally competitive and you know all those kinds of things somehow that kind of always gets dismissed when it comes to this sort of thing whether it's in entertainment or in games in particular yeah i, I think it's not an either or equation here right that, yeah. in that it can't be either grants or or rebates it's it's a combination and it's got to be a, a whole of industry approach I think that if we have grants that are in place that allow people to try new ideas, try out things um, that may or may, may or may not work, I think you know as long as we're measuring success not in terms of products but in terms of knowledge outcomes, and I think that's that's fine because knowing what not to do is just as valuable as knowing what to do. And so I, I think we need those grants and that sort of stuff in place for people to be taking those risks to find the next breakout, right? Like to find the thing that. Comes out of nowhere and 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 redefines the market and and puts Australia at the forefront of it. So that that needs to happen. And I mean, and even also just for 
people looking to enter this industry, right? To giving them a, a boost about to get started and uh, get some foundations under them so they can actually start producing and, and, and getting to market. That's, that's necessary. But I think we need something at the other end as well. We need something that encourages ambition. Um, you know, you look at the, the visual effects and, and the sort of rebates that they get around, around eligible expenditure. It, it's, it's tied around projects over a certain scale. And, 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 um, you know, and to maximize the benefit of that, you have to be, you know, the larger the production, the better, the better the benefit. So having that sort of system in place encourages companies to grow and look at taking larger steps and making larger products. And so it, it, it gives you that sort of ladder to build up as, as, as you, as you grow your company and you take the next step. Um, you know, so I think, that's that's what I'd like to see. You know, the, the the sad reality is that when we are out there pitching for work, um, you know, we're we're not being compared. You know, it's not a matter of Adelaide versus Melbourne versus Sydney versus Brisbane. It's Australia versus Poland versus Canada versus the UK, and and they all have very strong rebates and incentives in place. And the talent argument goes to a certain extent, and we've got some favorable exchange rates, although that's shifting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's, it's, it's exciting when you watch 10% of your, <laughs> of your revenue get wiped out in, in a week. But anyway, the, uh, you know, when, you, um, when you're trying to stack yourself up against those, it's, it makes it really, really hard. Now, obviously, we can use the quality of our work and, and our track record to offset some of that. But when at some level an exec is looking at, a, at, a, at the bottom line and saying, well, I can get twice as much work for half the price if I do it in Canada. So it's like, yeah, <laughs> like it's a, that's a tough one to argue against, right? And I, and I think, uh, you know, we can't get to that as an industry without support from government, right? And that's 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 just the the the, the reality of it. Much much as the the visual effects and film industry is, is 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 supported in that way because they're competing in the same market, right? Like they competing against rebates all around the world and, and stuff as well. Um, but the the difficulty there is that we're competing with them for talent in a lot of ways as well. Technical artists, animators, 3D artists, you know, the, the same person can work doing broadly the same job at a studio, you know, on the same street as me. Um, but the cost of that studio is, you know, 30% less than it is to me. And that's tough, right? That, that's a tough one to bear. Um, so like it, it's, I think there's a model there that you know, there's lots of models out there that we've seen work well internationally and I'd love to see them replicated here. Um, I, I feel that we're starting to be able to have that conversation now in a way that we haven't been up to before. One thing I think as well is like the, the industry itself has to like put forward a very ambitious vision of what it wants to be. Because if you, if you say, okay, if you look at our export revenue, which is hovering around one, 100 to 150 mil per year, and you say, you know, our goal is to grow that to 250 million a year. They're going to be like, yeah, that's like, that's, that's chicken feed. But if you say, we want to 10x that, you know, we want to go from 150 to 1.5 billion. Oh, okay. Shit. Like people start to pay attention to that, right? Yeah. You know, if we go from 1500 jobs to 15,000 jobs, all right. Now people, that's when they sit up in their seat and take notice. I, I think the economic conditions are working in our favor a little bit and that, you know, the sort of products that we create. Export revenue that's delivered digitally has, doesn't have to get on a boat or anything. Like, okay, that's fantastic. They're, they're loving that, and so being able to use that um, that momentum to be able to to articulate these these points and, and get the and get this get this you know get these systems in place would be would be fantastic. And I think there's a sort of a rare opportunity to get that done. Um, and I, I know there's a lot of people working very very hard behind the scenes to to have those conversations and and to um, to put forward that vision. But we need the whole industry backing them up, right? We can't just have one or two people out there. Um, you know, waving the flags. Um, even if your vision for your your company and for yourself is to is to run that you know five man team or that ten man team, um, 
you should recognize the benefit of having that full ecosystem in place and having those large um, corporates in place and having those those big studios back here in Australia. Um, like that will ultimately benefit you. These sort of things that we're talking about, these incentives and stuff will benefit everybody, not just the big guys. Um, and yeah, like I say, and it's about keeping that talent within within Australia. Like the if if uh, if a big if a big I don't know, what's a big studio? If a big Ubisoft turns up and sets up a Montreal style studio with you know three thousand people, okay, that's probably a bit much. But you know, if we uh, if we set up a nice big five hundred person studio, a lot of people who go and work there, they're going to reach a point in their career where they've earned enough and they've shipped enough that they're going to want to start their own products. Yeah. You know? They're going to get to that point for like where I am in my life, where they're like, how many games have I got left? You know, how, what, what, what am I going to, what's the mark I'm going to leave? And that'll be that next wave of studio and that next wave of opportunity. And plus, you know, what was obviously seen, and if you talk to people internationally, they'll bear it out, is when the big guys turn up, they often don't, they can't do everything from at the start, right? So they look for local studios to partner with and, and that helps everyone in the ecosystem, right? Like, because now there's more work for you and more work for everyone else. And even if you don't get that work, you benefit from the, the talent uh, you know, uplift and the and the excitement around it. More graduates start to, to turn up and want to be part of that process and, and be part of that journey. And that means that there's more talent to, around for everybody. So I think that's it's, it's always a net positive every way I look at it. And uh, yeah, so I think, like I say, if uh, we're very close to being able to to get some of those those things, those systems and programs in place. And, and I think what you'll find is that once they once it starts, there'll be a There'll be a bit of a, a bit of a rush of uh, of investment and of, of of growth within this industry. So I'm very excited. <laughs> yeah. Um. And so, what I guess are your current thoughts on the you know the education side of things? Of you know, I guess helping people go from graduate to someone who has genuine experience, so they're delivering you know value into that. It seems like sometimes that mid tier of of experience is that tricky spot to to fill yeah. in some ways. Yeah, there's a lot of like uh, job ads looking for two to three years experience, and it's like, <laughs> well, yeah, who's <laughs> who, who's, who's out there, you know, getting interns or whatever. Um, yeah, look, we we run a graduate program every year where we where we look to find talent. Um, you know, the I mean, uh, this year we've had to postpone the, the, the start of our program, which has been really frustrating, um, thanks to the to, to the pandemic. But um, yeah, we we've got five very awesome candidates on this year. We've, we've had uh, eight last year and eight the year before, so that's there's no lack of talent around. Like there's a lot of really, really um, amazing talented people out there. But one of the, we did a bit of a review with one of our uh, cohorts, one of our graduate cohorts to look at um, industry preparedness. Like how well was the education system preparing them for realities of working in the industry? And uh, overwhelmingly they were like, this is pretty much exactly what we were told it would be. <laughs> and so whoever's out there educating these people is doing a fantastic job. Uh, so, you know, we, find, we found the quality of candidates um, to be extremely high. Now we, yeah, last last year we or this year we we took five. I think there were, I think it was uh, between two hundred fifty and three hundred applicants for those for those positions. Yeah, wow. So yes, we, we are we are like picking you know from the best of the best. But I, I could look at fifty of those people and say you could have a job in this industry. There's a lot of talent out there. Yeah. So the, I think what what we're seeing, particularly like we, we see it here locally, that a lot of the people who are educating the the students these days are people who were working in those big studios, those big AAAs back in there. So they they have a lot of insight in a way that lecturers and, and, and educators don't normally have. Yeah. Um, and so that's just lifting the quality bar in terms of the, the graduates that are coming out. Um, yeah, the difficulty is that we just can't hire all of them, right? That's that's the thing, right? There's just not enough enough jobs out there. Uh, and so this is where I think there's um look if you know if we can find ways to 
like I, I hesitate to say that we should replicate the internship model that they have overseas because that that can be exploited and you know, yeah. exploitative as well. So you need to find ways of replicating the experience, experience, but making sure that there's like value being um, you know fed back to the to the to the students. It's a lot, but we've we've managed to do it in the past through universities because they can get course credits and stuff like that. So there's actually like tangible benefits for for doing that sort of stuff, but. Oftentimes, it's really difficult to negotiate and, and put together. So we often found it was easier just to hire people than it was to, to actually try and go through the, through the paperwork sometimes. Um, but yeah, I, I think that, uh, yeah, the other thing that we're noticing with, the, with the, um, the graduate talent is that it's far more diverse than any other, um, you know, any other age bracket that we look at or, or seniority. I don't know how you'd like, you know. Yeah. I often think that, uh, you know, the term senior, junior, et cetera, are just a measurement of tenure, not necessarily a measurement of, of skill. Yeah. And we've had we've had graduates who come out and within, you know, one of them within six months was the lead environment artist on, on wildlife on our big product. He's he's just amazing. Yeah. And that's, that's the quality of talent, right? Like, uh, so they're growing up with these tools sometimes now, like uh, yeah. from so early that I keep, you telling, yeah. I keep kind of hassling my own kids to go, start playing with the tools of these things. If you <laughs> want to do that, cause you can. <laughs> well, there's, I mean, as we think about it, there's a lot of really cool stuff around the sort of product people are playing Roblox and, and, uh, and Minecraft and, and even like Terraria and others. They're as much about creativity as they are about play. Right. And mm-hmm. they're, so they're all content creators in their own way, whether it's just for themselves or for their siblings or whatever they're being trained to be content creators. And so this is kind of like ingrained in their brain, right? Like creating a nice house in Minecraft is as much about level design as it is about aesthetic design, right? Yeah. And uh, so there's, it, it is pretty crazy to think about how um, people who grew up on this stuff spring a different perspective and a different skill set in, into, the, into, the, into the studio. So yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of really exciting stuff. My, um, my last sort of act of programming in the studio was writing shaders. I was one of the people who could who'd understand shader language. Um, but then Yanni, the, the graduate who did the, the environment art for wildlife, uh, he came in and rewrote one of my shaders and made it so much better that I'm like, oh man, I've got, I've got nothing. <laughs> I have no value anymore. But, uh, Was yeah, that so the day you handed in your license? <laughs> got to hand it in. Oh, I hung, on, I hung on to it for a little bit longer. My, my prior from my cold dead hands. No, it was, uh, it was, uh, look, it was the end of a, it was a recognition of the fact that, uh, I'd been holding it for so long and doing nothing with it. It would be much more useful for someone else, but uh, but yeah, yeah. So look, I, I find like there's the, the universities have been fantastic. The courses are great. They're listening to the industry and they're setting up the coursework to really match what it is that we do. Um, you know, the, the engines that they pick, whatever that, that sort of stuff's irrelevant. Any studio, any job you walk into, you're going to have to train someone up on your tools and your systems anyway. Um, so it's the fundamentals that we, we're more interested in: how to interact with people, how to talk, how to take feedback, how to deliver criticism, how to receive criticism. Those are the sort of things which we don't normally see out of graduates, but we're getting now. And I think that's to do with the, the quality of the education that, they, that they're getting. So they're coming to us very well-rounded and, and that, that's fantastic. Um, but yeah, it's just that, uh, you know, we want to make sure that there's a strong, thriving industry for them to, to move into. Yeah. And um, yeah, like I would, yeah, like I say, it's, it's hard to, to figure out what the, the one, <laughs> the one weird trick to, to give everyone that two to three years experience we we often encourage people. So we people who don't quite make the cut for our grad program, we try and keep in touch with them via um, Discord, I think, and and uh, and other other systems to try and help them keep uh, upping their skills. In fact, this year, uh, one of our programmers that we we took on as a graduate, he um, he was unsuccessful last year, but took on a lot of the feedback 
and applied himself for a year and was successful again. And that, that's, that's twice that's, that's happened to us. We had someone from the first graduate intake who, who, who came through in the second. And that's, you know, that, that shows as much about uh, the character of that person, um, you know, more than any, any, anything else. And, and so to, to keep pushing and striving to, to, to improve and, and to be the best, whatever it is, you know, artist or programmer or, or animator that you can be, and to look for opportunities to get feedback and act on it, you know, and not brush it off and say, um, you know, you just don't get it. <laughs> like, uh, like, uh, you know, that's, that's how we like to, what we like to see them do. And, and like I said, with, with Steam and some of these other platforms, itch.io and others, there's, there's paths to market that there weren't, you know, that are even easier than getting on iOS and, and on, on, on Google Play. You don't even need a phone. You've probably already got a computer. That's how you, <laughs> that's how you write your CV. Uh, and, and, and so I think like, um, working on product and shipping it. I think shipping is the other thing, man. Like it's just yeah. getting, getting things out the door, like as terrible as it could be. Like, uh, I'm, I'm never one to be interested in, in, well, I mean, we look at the quality of the work, obviously, but more interesting to me is a conversation. Right? Like if you're putting it up, something that's terrible and telling me that it's great, you know, that's okay. That's something we need to work on. But if you're putting up something that's terrible and you're telling me it's terrible and you're telling me why and telling me the reasons, the things that you change, if you did it again, what you learned, what the lessons that you learned were. Okay, that's that's a really good conversation to have. I like that conversation. So I always, I often tell artists, you know, don't be afraid to show your early work and show the progression that you've made because that's what excites us, right? Like, hey, look where they were a year ago. Look where they are today. What are they going to be like in five years' time? Yeah. You know, they're, they're just going to be shooting the lights out. And that's, you know, that's what we look for. We look for a potential. That's what we hire for mostly, right? Like, just, I guess so the three things we look at, like we, we look at your current skill level. Because that's to look at a marker of where you are in your journey. We look at where you've come from. We look at, particularly for graduates, where did, where did you start your course? We talk to your lecturer. We talk to your, to your references and say, what did you come in with? If you came in and you're an A plus and you left as an A plus, well, what, that's not much of a, you know, an improvement curve. But if you came in as a, as a C and now you're an A plus, it's like, or if you came in as a C and now you're a B, you know, like if you've got this curve and we're looking at it and we're going, okay, shit, like if they keep doing this, this, you know, they're going to end up up here. Um, so when we when we look at talent, when we evaluate talent, it's not about how they represent today; it's how they will represent in in, in five years' time, and and not just in the skill level, but also in um, you know like what are they like emotionally? You know, it's, what are their soft skills like? You know, what are they like as a person? When we through our interview process, you, you, they submit a, a um, piece of work, it gets criticised, and some direction is given, and then they resubmit it again. How did they handle that? Like, did yeah. they argue? <laughs> you know, did they fight it? Um, so these are, these are little indicators, right? And, and we, we also try and, uh, mix up the interviewers, make sure there's technical and non-technical people and, and, uh, and different, uh, different genders in there and just a whole bunch of different, uh, environments to try and tease out as much as we can, right? About these candidates and how they, how, what they're going to be like. Um, and yeah, and that's like, you know, the, the old, the old sort of, uh, you know, we feel very strongly that, a diverse studio is a powerful studio, right? That every every piece of research you read says that a diverse workplace outperforms a homogenous one, right? And so, when you look at uh, the whole the wholeness of your candidate, not just their work, but who they are, where they come from, what's their story, what's their what's their voice, you know, what perspective they bring into your studio that you don't have, um, whether that's you know, whether that's ethnic or gender or socioeconomic or whatever. Like, there's a lot of different angles that you can that you can approach it at. But try and understand who this person is and, and what voice that they're bringing in to your studio and, and what, how their lived experience can improve your, your studio. Marry that up with their talent and, 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 their, and, their, um, and their capacity to learn and their, and their potential. And that's how you find the best candidate, right? It's, yeah. 
Yeah. That's, that, that's what works for us anyway. <laughs> yeah. Cool. And it takes, it takes time. It takes time, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. but it's worth it. Um, so I guess, yeah, just as a wrapping up point, you know, let's uh, finish on a positive note. What do you, what do you feel like are the, the, the exciting opportunities, you know, and the, I guess the, the potential of the Australian industry on, you know, in the coming shiny new decade. We'll, we'll pretend <laughs> a pandemic didn't just happen and we'll just, we've got a whole shiny new decade ahead of us. <laughs> yeah. No, there is, there is a lot of stuff to be excited about. Like, so there's a few, there's a few, uh, like there's, there's a few ways that we could, we could approach this question. One, one is sort of like looking at the, the sort of global uh, position of the Australian games industry. We're, we're noticing that a lot of like, um, a lot of markets are being uh, saturated in terms of talent, right? Like there's, there's, it's becoming harder and harder for companies to find uh, cost-effective, should we say, talent in, in different areas. Um, you talk to a, a big studio in China now, there's no cost advantage to being in China. There's so many studios there that the, you know, the competition for talent is so high um, that, uh, that you look at, they're looking at places like Australia now and saying, hmm, there's a lot of talent here, not a lot of studios. If we can get in here first, we're going to be able to attract a lot of stuff. Right? So there's, those conversations are happening and, and we've talked to a few people about that. Um, and we're very, very close. There'll be a tipping point coming soon uh, around getting the right uh, incentives in place and suddenly you'll find that there'll be a, a rush of, of studios. So that, that's exciting on, on one level. Um, on the other, like where one of the one of the flaws that I, I, I think was inherent in the, the previous sort of incarnation of the, of the game industry in Australia, um, back pre GOC, was that it was built on being a sort of cheap outsourcing uh, for larger studios overseas. What we're seeing now is that the industry as it stands today is built on the back of creativity and original content and original IP, and that's that's fantastic. That's a much stronger, much more robust industry to build on. So I think, you know, we'll see, so Hollow Knight's probably the closest there. You know, Goose Games have sort of broken out in a big way as well. I think, like, the thing that interests me is once you've had success, what do you follow that up with? Like, once is, once is a flute, twice is a skill, right? Like, uh, not to say that, that Ari and Hollow Knight wasn't a wasn't skill because those guys are amazing. But, uh, you know, I, I want to see how they can turn that from being a, um, a nice game into a, into a, a fantastic brand, right? And, and how we sort of build these things where, we, where you look at, like, uh, you know, look at what Blizzard does and how they've managed to take Warcraft from way back in the day and turned it into this humongous media empire, right? Like, I'm not saying we all need to go down that path, but like, I'd like to see Australian studios take the steps down that way. Like, you know, more sort of relevant, I guess, would be like Rovio with Angry Birds, turning that from a like a physics-based fuzzer to now like this entertainment juggernaut, movies, soft toys, everything. I think there are some companies that are on the cusp of doing that in Australia. And uh, I'd like to see in the next decade someone make that step. So we have this this robust stable of original IP. Um, I think as well we're seeing in sort of more technical level, there's a blurring of lines between platforms. Uh, if you look at what, what Fortnite does, you have probably the same experience on a phone, on a on a tablet, on a on a switch, or on a PC, or on a on a console. So people are increasingly like we we notice it in the kids market, right? No no one. They don't judge your brand by just one single expression of it. They look at the entire brand and they don't, they expect to see it everywhere, right? So they, they will look for you on YouTube. They'll look for you on the app store. They'll look for you on, on, on Netflix. And so it's about, you know, um, we're seeing those boundaries sort of start to, to blur. And I think the, the talent that we have in Australia, which has come from console and then moved to mobile and is increasingly going back to console again. We are uniquely positioned to understand the needs of both systems and to and to build that cross-platform bridge, right? And, and I think 
technically there's a lot of very very smart and savvy people in in in, uh, in Australia. Shout out to um, Mighty Games, who's a great name, <laughs> but uh, they um, they've got a set of really interesting and clever tools that help. But we we use it to test and 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 uh, a lot of our console games and our um, and our, uh, our our mobile games, and it's uh, it's amazing to see how it can just blend between between the two. So I think we're uniquely positioned to be able to deliver that content across multiple multiple platforms. And, and I think that'll be an increasing advantage over the next uh, over the next ten years. So look, I, I think there's a lot, of, a lot of stuff to be positive about. We're going to see a bit of a, like I say, we're going to see a shift coming. We're going to see studios return. Whether we like whether it's like this year or next year or five years, it'll happen, right? And, and that's going to be a big shake up to this industry, and it's going to be exciting to see, um, you know, how that how that all goes. And uh, my 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 goal is to have not just uh, you know an Ubisoft studio or a Blizzard studio. But to have an Australian studio that's held up to the same regard with the same, you know, working on titles of the same size and having hundreds of employees and, and, and churning out amazing original IP. Um, that would be the truest success, I think. And that's, that's, that's what I'm building towards. And that's what, I, uh, that's what I'm going to make happen <laughs> one way or another. <laughs> High Resolution is part of the Biteside Podcast Network. Find more shows at Biteside.com or, of course, right there in your podcast app, just search Byteside and you should find them all. And thanks to Igea for help putting these developer interviews together. And if you want to have a chat yourself with me for an episode, give me a shout via at Seamus on Twitter or you can email me via ask at Byteside.com. Catch you again soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.